I'm pretty sure we wouldn't even have to open a Bible tonight. Who doesn't know Romans 8, 28? Let's read it anyway. The Apostle Paul says, and we know. Now, anytime the Bible says, and we know, that's code for we don't know, right? Uh, that's why we're here, right? Four weeks. We're trying to, we want to know. We should know, right? Some of us may know, but, but, but we know. Paul has come to these conclusions. Uh, like any believer in Jesus Christ, he's come to certainties and conclusions. I think that's what a long walk with God is. He's going to write at the end of the chapter, I am persuaded. And he's trying to persuade us. But he says, <clears throat> we know that all things, not some things, all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these also he called, and whom he called, these he justified, and whom he justified, these also he glorified. So Paul's saying there is something we should know. He knows it. He has come to these conclusions. There are certainties in Paul's life that he understands about God. Now, here's what I find ironic. He says we should know, but in verse 26, he said there's something we don't know. He said we don't know how to pray at times. Life can get to a point where, God, I don't even know how to pray. I don't know what to pray. And then the Spirit takes over with groanings that can't be uttered. Now, the beauty of Romans 8 is this is the believer's treasure, right? These great bookends, there's no condemnation, there's no separation. What we're learning on Wednesday nights through Romans 8 is that we are inseparable for the God who loved us and saved us, that what we've committed to him, he's preserving until the final day. These are wonderful truths about security and assurance of who we are and where we're going. But as rich as that is, and by the way, this whole chapter is to free us. That's the idea. That our Christian lives were meant to be lived from a place of freedom, not from a place of fear, right? We don't fear God in the sense that we fear him. We fear him that we respect him and he's holy. But oh my gosh, if there's anything Romans 8 should be instilling in us is that we are free to go out and influence the world for Christ. The problem is many Christians are stuck. That's why we're doing a series on Sunday called Unstuck. Stuck in traditions, which Jesus said, make the word of God to no effect. Stuck in religion, stuck in the way they were raised, stuck in some attachments in, in, in a home life. Um, the origin of life you had as a child, all these different things are holding us back. And meanwhile, Jesus Christ wants to free us. He wants us to soar in our relationship with him. And so Paul writes this from a very high perspective that, that, that God loves us, he cares for us, his grace is enough for us. But then he has to add in verse 18, for I consider the suffering of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be re revealed in us. See, to get to all things working are for good, we have to understand that there's something wrong with this world. I talked about it last time. There's suffering, right? There's things we don't know. If anyone knows in here why good things happen to bad people, I'll meet you after and I'll buy you a cup of coffee. You could tell me. Now, I know some things why they happen. I know there's an evil one who steals, kills, and destroys. I know we live in a fallen world. I know we make bad choices. 
Why do couples that want to have children can't have children? Why do people that have children don't care for them? Why are there world wars? Why was there a holocaust? Why doesn't God stop a man from raping a woman? I mean, we can go on and on and on. Suffering is one of the great barriers to a person believing in God. So there are things we don't know. There are sufferings in this world. But Paul said, as we look at God working things out, we have to take the, the eternal into mind. In other words, if we're going to just look at this verse and say, oh my gosh, yeah, all things working for God, good. God's going to fill my bank account. God's going to heal me. I got this little placard on my cubicle, right? All things are working for good. So God's going to make everything work out in the end. Is not true, okay? Because there's an eternal weaving through this. There's something beyond this life, Paul's saying. But Paul can write with a certainty that we know. There's something that he has figured out. And even though we don't know a lot of things, we know that God is full of grace. He's full of love. That he's keeping what we have given unto him until the final day. Now, let's talk about what the verse isn't saying. Right? It's not saying that all things will eventually be good. Okay? That's a Disney theology, right? That in the end, we're happily ever after and everybody gets married and everything's wonderful. Nowhere does the Bible talk about those things. Jesus said in this life we would have tribulation. Uh, he pronounced that in 70 AD, the armies of Rome would come against his own people, Jerusalem. Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time to be born, there's a time to die, and there is a lot going on in our world. So not everything will turn out to be good. It doesn't say, secondly, that God will fix everything, Okay? It doesn't mean we come to God, we say a prayer, and then right away God just makes it all better. See, there's a sowing and a reaping process, right? Maybe a young girl gets pregnant, right? And then she comes to Christ and she's like, oh God, take this away from me. No, there was a sowing and there's a reaping, right? She's going to have the child. Now, God will work all through that, but God won't make everything good immediately or when we want him to. And the final thing it's not saying is that God caused all these things. God didn't say that he would allow Hitler to have a holocaust so one day there would be a nation of Israel. Okay? God isn't putting you through suffering so on the other end something else could happen. God is not the author of evil, right? There's a classic example of this where there was a pastor who lost his 25-year-old son. And all the people in the church began to find out about it, and they found the pastor's home. And one by one, they would come in with their quiches. They would lay it down on the table and say, we're so sorry, pastor, but your son's dying was the Lord's will. And finally, when the 20th person came in, he slammed the table. And he said, do you think it was the Lord's will that my son drank too much that night? Do you think it was the Lord's will that his windshield wiper wasn't working? Do you think it was the Lord's will that the guardrail was broken down? That pastor said, I want everybody in this room to know that the day my son's car plunged into that river, God was the first to shed a tear. There's a lot of truth in that, right? You know, we have to put all these things together and say it was the Lord's will or, or God allowed this. And, and certainly God does allow things, but there is a bigger picture to all this. And that's why Job starts off by saying he was the most righteous man in the East. So that when all this calamity comes, we couldn't say it was because Job sinned. That's what all his friends said. That's how they put it all together. And we see that one 
time in the scripture, that cosmic conversation where God is talking to Satan about Job and we see God bragging on Job. And that's what we have to remember, that there is a God bragging on us and he's watching over us and he's elbow deep in the affairs of our life and he's allowing all things to work for the good to those who love him and are called to his purpose. So those are the things the verse isn't saying. What it is saying is that we know certain things about God. Even though you and I experience, you know, an uncertain future, right? We don't know what tomorrow brings. Who would have predicted 9-11? Terrorism, school shooting. We, we live in the same world. But you and I can walk through this because we know God is working. Uh, if you ever listen to deconversion stories, have you ever heard them? A deconversion story is someone who supposedly was a believer, read the Bible, loved Jesus Christ, and then something happened in the world and now they're far from God. Now, there's a woman who's a blogger, and I was reading her blog, and she's in this position. And she wrote a blog called, Why I'm Raising My Children Now Without God. She said, and so I thought it was only right to be honest with my children. She said, I'm a non-believer, and for years I've been on the fringe in my community. As a blogger, though, I found that there are many other parents out there who are like me now. We're creating the next generation of kids, and there is a wave of young agnostics, atheists, free thinkers, those who have disassociated from Christianity, and humanists rising up through the ranks who will hopefully lower our nation's religious fervor. Here are a few reasons why I'm raising my children without God. God is a bad parent and a role model. He's not logical. He's not fair. He doesn't protect the innocent. He's not present. He doesn't teach his children to be good, and God is a narcissist, and he teaches narcissism, right? So this woman had a bad experience in her life and now has deconverted from God. And yet Paul comes and says, no, no. He said, there are certainties in my life that no one can ever take from me. And Paul said, I know they are true. He doesn't know them because he read Romans 8.28, he wrote Romans 8.28. He doesn't know it because someone told him. He knows it through experience. He knows it through walking with God. Uh, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. I could have had you go to Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, but Deuteronomy 5 is the second giving of the law. And in verse 6, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. And you shall not bow down nor serve them. God's saying, look, there's logic here. You were in Egypt. You built the statues. You built the sphinx, you know, the winged creatures, you know, what did they do for you is the idea. And then God tells them why. For I am the Lord your God, verse 9, am a jealous God. Jealous for us is the idea. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. 
Now, every time we go here, people talk about generational sins. I don't know why. There's so many books written about this, and there's a lot of teaching on generational sins, that if your father or grandfather was involved in a sin, it's coming down to you, and you need a bondage breaker, and you got to go through the rebirthing tunnel and, and whatever it is, because there are generational sins. No, there are not. God doesn't hold anyone accountable for something somebody else has done. Now, when God looks at societies, he sees communities. And sometimes communities are judged on the whole. But even when God would judge the Amorites or other nations like this, God gave them 400 years. And he wasn't judging the last generation on what the previous generations had done because the, the, the previous generation was doing the same thing as the idea. So there are no generational sins. There are generational proclivities. Now, I, I know we live in an ethnic, politically correct tension, but my wife and a lot of my relatives are Irish, so I'll use the Irish, okay? So some people will say, all the Irish are drunks, right? No, the Irish aren't all drunks, but in that culture, there's a proclivity to drinking. There's learned behavior. It's passed down. It's not in their genes. It's just learned through culture, right? More is caught than taught. But there are no generational sins. And for a believer, and we don't want to get into that tonight, but for a believer, look what it says here. God is visiting iniquity down the third and fourth generation to those who hate him. I would think we're lovers of God tonight, right? And to those who love God, what's he doing? Showing mercy. That's that word has said we talked about last time. He's showing kindness and grace and mercy. This is where you need to live. This is the staggering truth that to those who love God, he is showing and extending mercy constantly. And this is what we got to know. We have to know God's character. Very hard not to look at David whenever we talk about the love of God. And one of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 27, verse 4, where he says, One thing I desired of the Lord and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Some versions say forever. David says all the days of my life. Why? To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me and he shall set me upon a rock. See, David was in love with God, and he had these desires for God. Can I talk to you for just a few minutes about desire? Because Christians struggle in this area. Desires are very interesting. For instance, on Wednesday night about 4 o'clock, I have a desire for that pulled pork sandwich in the table. <laughs> and uh, I also have a desire to watch the second half of the Sixers when this study's over when I get home. I have a desire to chase the little white ball around and go to movies and things like that. I have a desire to be a husband and a dad, to pastor a church, to see people saved and grow in their faith. And there's all these desires lurking. You hear what David said? As desire would bubble up in David, he said, here's my desire that I would dwell forever in the house of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. What was David saying? David was saying that all these desires that God has given us, and, and none are, you know, it's not the idea that some are bad and some are good. You know, um, there are things we like to do. There's casual desires. There's, there's these wonderful things. There's things we're called to do. But almost every desire that comes up, 
really is a desire for God. It really is. The problem is, where are we placing those affections? Now, that's been the argument of the ages. So when I have a desire to do certain things, God allows me to do that. That's wonderful. If I want to watch a movie one night, it's wonderful. But if I sit there watching, you know, 26 hours of Netflix, I'm not sure that's what my soul really needs, right? <laughs> See, at the end of the day, all these desires are bringing us back to God. One author said, desire is an invitation from God for us to enter into the beauty of God. See, that's what David was talking about. It's an echo of what is truly beautiful so that no matter what you desire, no matter what is the extent of your restlessness, every desire should be seen as a God's call to your soul for both union and distinction. Isn't that amazing? That when I'm anxious and restless, there, there's, God's stirring something there. He's calling me. And see, when, when you get into this type of relationship with God, then you begin to understand, not because a Bible teacher told you, not because you heard it somewhere or read a book, you begin to understand, you know, God really is working all these things for good. You know, in my relationship with God, I can see it now, I can see clearly. You know, I don't like some of the things that are going on, I don't like the pressure that's coming on me, but I can see God's working all these things, and sometimes desire is starting to bring us closer to God, and we begin to know these things. How many C.S. Lewis fans do we have? Yeah, probably most of us. The four loves, always at the top. To love is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly and probably be broken. Isn't that amazing? Choose to love. Choose to have kids. Choose to do anything. Choose to get in a relationship. Your heart will probably be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, that it's never broken... Give it to no one, not even an animal. Just don't even get a dog or fish or hamster. Wrap it carefully around hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up in a coffin or casket of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, um, it will never change. It will never be broken. It will never grow, right? But for those who love God, some things we're starting to figure out. We're starting to figure out that, that some of these things God's working out are eternal. I was sitting on the beach with my wife. I had gone through that season where I was out of ministry. And uh, I hadn't looked at my phone or email for days. It's one of the things I thought would help cure me is get away from all that. And I was feeling pretty good sitting there at the beach. And I thought, wow, I'm going to boot my phone up. And I got to tell you, the first thing that came up on my browser was Chuck Smith died. Died while I was kind of off the grid. And I'm reading all these stories about Chuck, and I turned to my wife and I said, boy, the end is really bad, isn't it? And I'll never forget what she said. She said, only if you're looking at it in this life. Only if this life is the end. And so the eternal's here. For those who love God, he's working all things out. It doesn't mean everything will be made well in this lifetime. But he's working all things for good. And he did it in Joseph's life, right? Sold into slavery. Finally becomes the prime minister of Egypt. When his brothers and his family finally come and, you know, they're heartbroken over what they had done to Joseph. Remember what Joseph said? You meant all this for evil, but God meant it for good. In other words, God didn't do all this, so I would become the prime minister of Egypt, but God made all things work out for the good. Job, we already mentioned him at the end, said, now I know 
that my Redeemer lives. I know. I had heard of him through the hearing of the ear, but now I can see him. Peter understood. Remember when Jesus said, Peter, this is how you're going to die? And he said, what about John? Right? Yeah, all right, all right, Lord, but how's John dying? Right? You know, Peter, that's not for you to know, but Peter gets to this wonderful place, and he writes these verses in Peter, and Paul's in the same place. I know the time of my departure has come. These are seasoned people who know with a certainty the grace of God and the love of God and the keeping power of God. And they know it by experience, and they know it by walking with him. So we know all things work together for the good of all those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. One last thing. Does that mean for people that don't know God, things aren't working for good? I've wrestled with this one, and it's a little above my pay grade, to be honest. But it's something worth thinking about, right? Now, I'm a firm believer that even when I didn't know Christ, God was bringing me to this place, right? I really believe God was involved in my life, right? He created me, and I'm in the image of God. And Paul said he's not far from any one of us. The day I became a Christian, this is unbelievable, I thought of at least seven times where I heard the gospel. I was 14 years old, and I used to lay in bed with the transistor radio and listen to sports radio. It was brand new when I was 14. And one night I fell asleep, I woke up four in the morning, and I heard a guy on the radio talking about the end of the world. It was Hal Lindsey. And I was mesmerized. This is back when he was writing The Late Great Planet Earth, and prophecy was like going off the rails. And I said to myself, when I get up, I'm going to buy this book. Never remembered that night until I became a believer. And I remembered six other encounters, signs that I had seen on churches, you must be born again, and people that witnessed to me, in parking lots, I remembered them all when I became a Christian. So certainly God was working in my life, but do all things work together for people that don't know God? You know, one of the scary things in Scripture is when God lets you just have your way. Romans 1, that he just turns you over to your own devices and says, have at it and have your way. And there's that phrase that keeps getting repeated, that God turned them over, that God gave them over. Hardened Pharaoh's heart. So I don't know how all this works, but this is our treasure. It really is. We who were dead and lost in trespasses and sins, now God is weaving this tapestry. Now the question is, where are we going? If all things are working together for good, where are we going? Is this so we're going to be wealthy, Rich, happy, wise, what, you know, what's it all working forward to? Well, the next verse clears it up. <clears throat> to those who love God who are called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? His purpose is in verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. See, that's where we're going. The word predestined, and when I know when you hear it, you get all riled up about Reformed theology, are we predestined to God choose us? No, that's not what the word means, actually. The word predestined means that a course was set. It, it, it's from the Greek word where we get horizon. It means to set a plan, right? In other words, God set a plan for you and me, and for every one of us it's different. God set a course for us. 
The course for us is individual, but overall, it's to be conformed into the image of his son. That's what this is all about. Now, it's funny. How is he doing that? He's doing it differently in everybody. For you people over there, God's conforming you to his image by things that are happening in your life. And you over there, there's different things happening. So how many people have seen the potter when he's been here? Right, Mike Rosell? And he's working on that wheel, right? The music's playing or Pam's singing and he's making this wonderful vase and then all of a sudden he cuts it off. And everybody goes, ah. And he said, in my mind, I was always making a pot. See? And that's what the potter's doing. He's making vessels. He's conforming us into the image of Christ. The, the, the thing we don't understand is he's doing it differently in all of our lives. Because there's something in all of our lives that have to be worked out, right? So your marriage, your parenting, life, it's all being worked out that you would be conformed into the image of God. This is the goal. And so very simply, those who he foreknew, who he knew he was going to call, he predestined to be conformed, to be shaped into the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, Moreover, whom he predestined, these also he called, and whom he called, he also justified, and who he justified, he glorified. Now, this sounds confusing, right? Whom he foreknew means to set his love upon. Don't look at it like he set his love on some and not the other. That's not what these verses are talking about. If you want to make that argument, there's better verses you can go to. When it says God foreknew, it means just think about this. There was a time in eternity past before you and I ever existed where God placed his love on you. Is that amazing? And if God did that before you did anything, you think he'll ever take it away? No. Who he foreknew, he predestined. In other words, he laid out a plan for you. I love the imagery of the Old Testament. I love under Joshua when, we, when they come in the land. And the land is apportioned by lots, the drawing of lots. So the actual lots were from lots, right? And it's funny because, you know, the drawing of lots puts some by the sea and some by the Jordan River. Some were put in a barren land down at the Negev. They were put all over. Some on mountains and, and, and hills and, and others on fertile ground. As we look at the plain of Megiddo and such. And you look at all that and you say, God, what are you doing? And what God's doing is he's making a plan. He's saying, you're going to bloom here. I'm going to plant you here for a reason. You won't know this reason maybe until we get to heaven, but you're here for a reason, and I want you to live out this plan. And so there's something God has for each and every one of us. And so when it says he foreknew us, it means he set his love on us. He set a plan for us, and then he called us. Right? Everyone in here knows they were called because we're here. Paul, constantly going through his testimony. What happened on the Damascus Road? Paul would never get away from that because he knew it had to be the hand of God. That he was called. And then that we might be glorified. It's amazing, these words. That we would be glorified, that we would be set in the image as his son. 
that every one of us is on a mission. I love this phrase, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called, right? We say that a lot, it's very true. You know, you get this desire in your heart, and you think, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm a nobody, but God will qualify you, right? And so there's these wonderful truths that, that we are on the right road, and there's a God who's right beside us, glorifying us that all these things might come to pass. But again, eternity's involved in here. It's not just this life. To be glorified means one day in glory. The scripture says, you know, we don't know what we shall be, right? Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard. We don't know what we're going to be. But we know when we see him, we'll be like him, we'll be glorified, we'll be finally conformed to his image. This is just the proving ground. This is just the training ground. So until our last breath, we are following this plan, and all these verbs are a part of our life. We're predestined, we're called, we're justified, glorified. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? Hooray! <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> if God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is no one. And then, can I give you the logic of the entire Bible? I don't know how many people have ever looked at this, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? The Christian life is easy on Wednesday night and Sunday morning, right? sing, we hear these wonderful truths, we're going to change the world, God loves us, and then Monday you get a pink slip, the gas heater blows up, blows up right, the car breaks down, the credit card gets disapproved, it's, you know, the negative bank account, like all this stuff happens, right, and what Paul's saying here is there is biblical algebra or calculus going on, if you ever doubt God's love, look at the cross. If you ever doubt God's involvement or what he's doing in the world, look at the cross. Because the calculus is right there. If God didn't spare his own son, if God didn't spare what was the closest to him, how will he then not give us all things? You've got to square that with God, right? Because that's the equation. The logic of the cross is if God already gave it all, how would he ever withhold anything from you? So what that tells me is the things that are happening in my life are for a reason. God is allowing things in my life because they're conforming me and keeping me on this plan and they're good for me. And one day, he's going to bring it to an expected end. I love verse 32. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. 
Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. As we watch these things come and go, and as we look in the rearview mirror and we see God involved in all these things, we are more than conquerors. And then finally, the great truth that we'll end with next week, for I am persuaded, this final certainty, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, William Jennings Bryan in the Scopes trial was asked to defend the mystery of God. The mystery of God, the mystery of godliness, right? There's a lot of mysteries to our faith, right? We're talking about them tonight. How's God working all these things for good? You know, I mean, just think about all the things God has to coordinate in this life just for my good, and then he's got your good, and all the, I mean, there's a lot going on that he's got to, all these intersections, right? And uh, I love this reply that the lawyer gave. He said, I have observed the watermelon seed. It has the power of drawing from the ground and through itself 200,000 times its weight. When you can tell me how it takes this material and out of it colors an outside surface beyond the imitation of art, then forms in it a white rind and within it a red heart, thickly inlaid with black seeds, each one which is in turn and capable of drawing through itself 200,000 times its weight. When you can explain to me the mystery of a watermelon, then I will give you the mystery of God. And so some of these things we are seeing through a glass dimly, right? You know, one day we're going to get to heaven and we're going to say, oh my gosh, yeah, that's how I, I get it, I get it. God didn't cause the Holocaust. He certainly worked through it. I remember Corrie Ten Boom when she was at Ravensbrook Prison. Her sister Betsy was dying. And her sister Betsy, a strong Christian, finally cracked and was ready to curse God. And Corey said, over the banner of our life, God wrote Ravensbrook Prison. And Corey was released on a technicality and went on to preach around the world, wrote a book, The Hiding Place, turned into a movie. Did God cause the Holocaust? No, but he worked all things for good. And we did get the nation of Israel. And we can go on and on, and you can look at your life, and I can look at my life. I don't like making movie recommendations, secular recommendations. Well, there's a movie with Matt Damon, and uh, it's called The Adjustment Bureau. Anybody see it? It's unbelievable where Matt Damon's living his life, and there's these guys, The Adjustment Bureau, who I guess are supposed to be angels, and they have this book. It's a plan, this digital plan, and they have to keep people on the plan and get them where they need to go, and of course... You know, he falls in love with this girl, and he wants to break the plan, and, you know, it, it's just, and there's all these, they can go in and out of doors, it's a metaphor for open doors, and it, it kind of merges this free will sovereignty deal. It's kind of neat if you watch it. Somebody knew what they were doing making this movie. One day we'll fully understand. Right now, we see through a glass dimly. But the one thing I'm certain of is that God loves me, God cares for me. And God will keep what I've given him until the end. And the last thing I want to say is, you know, when I was a younger Christian, I could probably tell you all these things, but that was BP, before paint, okay? 
Oh, all these things are working for you. You know, I would tell a 50-year-old man, oh, don't worry about it. It's all working out for the good. Those love God are called by his name, you know? And then you get in the midst of pain, right? And by the way, when you're in the midst of pain, that's the revealer of who you really are. So I was at my doctor the other day, right? And he's looking at all my numbers. He says, yeah, he goes, you're right on the border, 10%. I'm like, what does that mean? He goes, well, you have a 10% chance of dying of heart attack or stroke right now. I'm like, thanks, Doc. I'm so glad I came today. <laughs> and um, we go through all these other things. And I said, i got to ask you a question. I said, um, I know all these guys who all of a sudden had a heart thing, and then they had to go get a stress test, and now they find out they have a condition. So here's my question. Why don't we all just go get stress tests? And he said, um, don't you play basketball on Monday nights? I'm like, yeah. He goes, don't you play basketball on Thursday? I'm like, yeah. He goes, don't you cut the grass? And I'm, yeah. He goes, that's your stress test. In other words, your heart is stressed, and if you feel something, something's wrong. See, when circumstances come into your life, that's the revealer of who you are. Anybody can love God at Sandy Cove, okay? <laughs> Three meals made for you, coffee flowing, singing. Oh, we all love God there. Who are we when the pressure comes? This is why NFL teams blitz, and this is why college teams press the other team. Because in the pressure, you find out who you are. In the midst of pain. And here's another good thing. After pain. After pain, you can look back. And you know what you normally say? And you hear people say it all the time. You know, I certainly wouldn't have chosen that. But for the lessons I've learned, I think I go through it all over again. Right? And so that's why we need the young folks. We need their passion. We need the wisdom of the older folks. Because they've lived through a lot of pain. And that's what makes a community. We merge that all together. But the one thing we can all say is God is working all things for our good. Because one day, we will see him face to face. It's not a cop-out. It's not a cop-out for this life. But a great and true reality.